I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to Bubble Trouble. Conversations between the economist and author Will Page and myself, independent analyst Richard Kramer, where we lay out some inconvenient truths about how financial markets really work. Today, we're in conversation with our seventh special guest, discussing hyper-competition in the world's almost largest economy, China. More in a moment. Welcome back to Bubble Trouble. We're delighted to have with us George Magnus, someone who's well-known to my co-host, Will Page. George, do you want to introduce yourself to our audience? Sure, uh, Richard. Thank you. So my name is George Magnus. I am an associate at the China Centre at Oxford University and also at the School of Oriental and African Studies in London. Um, Before I took these academic affiliations, I was the chief economist at UBS from about 1995 until about 2012, then a senior advisor for another four years. Yeah, that's kind of who I am. I wrote a book in 2018-19 called Red Flags, Why Seas China is in Jeopardy, and um, that's paying for my lunches nowadays. (laughs) And if I can come in there very quickly, George, and maybe just explain a bit about why I'm so pleased to get you on our podcast. Me and you go way back to when you would come up to Edinburgh advising various fund managers there. And I remember around about 2006, 2007, you wrote a paper which had the words Minsky moment in it. Now, this podcast is called Bubble Trouble, and in your career, you've seen many bubbles lead to many troubles. Could you just quickly reflect on that paper and what you saw when you realized that there's a risk of credit markets drying up? In many ways, you've got kudos in that. I told you so first, risk with your with, with your work more than anyone else's. Well, thanks, Will. I mean, every dog has his day, you know, so... Um, <laughs> That was mine. Yeah. So Hyman Minsky was an American economist who wrote about macroeconomics. And he was famous really for kind of identifying um, how it is that in complicated financial systems that the more banks try to create, and, and basically financial experts try to create stability, the more they are breeding instability, which one day kind of bites them in the backside and causes all sorts of trouble. Basically, we had a couple of dress rehearsals of kind of financial instability. There was, we had some housing crises in the 1980s. There was an Asia crisis in uh, 1997. There was a Russia crisis in 1998, and so on and so forth. But when I think in this particular case, when I started kind of casually reading about subprime mortgages, the extraordinary business term under which mortgages were being given 
to people that should never have had them in parts of the United States, particularly poorer parts of the United States. And it just kind of struck me that this was potentially the combination of a decade of just one deregulation in finance and a lot of stuff I saw going on in the back that I was working for, um, where people didn't really understand what they were doing. I mean, just one example before we move on. I sat next to, uh, well, for a while, my office was next to a group of traders who were trading asset-backed securities, mortgage-backed securities. Mm -hmm. They had data on the housing market in the United States going back 10 years. And when I challenged them as to why they only had such a short run of data, this was 2007, by the way, they said, oh, it's, you know, that's all we need. And I said, well, I've got data going on, you know, on housing markets going back to about 1900. Wouldn't you find that interesting? And they said no. And I knew there was a problem. <laughs> Sounds like a scene from the big short. Richard, from one bubble in 2006 to a bigger bubble that could be happening today, let's talk about China. Yeah, George, I wanted to, to get your perspective on how you make sense of a market like China, which publishes its GDP figures two weeks after the end of every quarter and never revises them. So when you're dealing with what clearly must be imperfect information. And as you gave us with that UBS example in mortgages, there's no interest to find slightly more perfect information. How should one navigate that sort of environment when you know that the market to some degree is going to be distorted by that information asymmetry that's baked in? Well, Richard, to be honest, it, it is a problem, but I don't think it's the biggest problem in China. And to be fair, they produce copious volumes of statistics, mm -hmm. which GDP is perhaps the worst. <laughs> but actually, there's, there are a lot of numbers that you can get hold of from you know, the National Bureau of Statistics, from other statistical agencies, from independent providers of data who basically kind of run the rule, really, over all of the available sources of data. So if you want balance sheet information on companies, if you want you know, the sort of minutiae of different types of steel. If you want to know export data for thousands of categories of products, I mean, th there's a lot of stuff that you can look at. You're right, though, that the GDP numbers are manicured. They are completely devoid of volatility or cyclicality. They don't really provide any kind of meaningful information. I think people have learned to live with it's imperfections because they produced proxies that will do for them in terms of what's going on. Plus, the government, to be fair, nowadays is de-emphasizing GDP. We may come on to this, but there is a, um, there's a the government has kind of re-emphasized an old slogan called common prosperity, which is designed to kind of capture the attention of the party and of citizenry to Issues related to income inequality and to fairness and more to the quality of growth. I think it's a problem because of malinvestment, because of poor allocation of capital in the past. It may well be that China's GDP is nowhere nearly as big as we think it is. And that's something that does have implications in the future. Let me ask about another difference that I really, it is really striking to me looking at tech companies because in the West, regulation is, is something that moves at a glacial pace. Uh, 
A government agency will launch an investigation into a company. It'll unfold over several years and go into the courts. The courts will opine on it. There might be an appeal. And some eight or 10 years later, there might be a resolution. And we've all forgotten what the issue was in the first place. Whereas what we've seen happen in China in the last year is that regulation happens almost instantly. And the companies fall into line and become compliant. Even the Chinese government we see now looking at taking board seats at some of the leading companies. How is regulation so different in China from what we're used to in the West? Is it just a matter of the balance between the role and the power of the state relative to the companies? Or is there another explanation that people would need to understand? I mean, yes, clearly the role of the state is different. And although there is lots of law in China, um, to use kind of a well-worn cliche, China functions according to the rule by law, not the rule <laughs> of law. And that's, that's an essential difference. You know, here you have a right of appeal. You can, you know, go to the Supreme Court or to the highest uh, legal authority in the land. You'll hopefully get a fair hearing. And if the court rules in your favor, then you've won. It doesn't really work like that in China, and particularly if, if you're a private firm in a sector that the government has deemed to be kind of relevant to national security, like data collection, storage, and privacy. Yeah, you, you don't really stand much. You, you basically conform or, or, you know, or you get punished. And that seems to happen. That heat seems to happen almost instantaneously in China. It does. And I think this is where people make a bit of a mistake, really, because there has been a blizzard of regulation in China since last November. And a lot of these regulations affected fintech companies, technology companies, data companies, platforms, gig companies, or, or companies that have a lot of gig workers, logistics companies, private tutoring. And if you look at each case on its own, you'd say, oh, well, we might have done that. We're not sure that it's a good idea for the state to stop kids looking at their video games more than, you know, two hours a week. But actually, lots of parents wish they could have the same capacity to do that. So each case on its own, you can look at it and say, they're just doing what we would like to do. But actually, that kind of narrow view is devoid of the political context in which this is happening. And the political context is everything. Just to move on to one other topic that's been all over the news, the consequences of a giant property company like Evergrande effectively going bust. And it, it raises the question of, don't look too closely, don't ask too many questions, but what's lurking in that Chinese banking system? I mean, you could just as well ask the questions of the West, and we do that a lot of bubble trouble thinking about the markets, but are there more Evergrands out there? Is this the tip of the iceberg, or was this really an isolated incident in a country that just can't build fast enough? Well, I think Evergrande is, okay, for people that might not know, it's China's second biggest property developer. And it, not alone, mm. it just happens to be the biggest property developer in the world. But there are other Chinese property developers, smaller companies that are equally in trouble. But within the private sector, it's probably in the worst sector. And I think that property, in a sense, really is a metaphor for a uh, wider issue of over-indebtedness in China, which pre predominantly resides in local and provincial governments and in state enterprises, and, well, mainly there. Household debt is pretty big, 
grown very quickly, five times the last 10 years, from two to $10 trillion. But so the, the property sector has problems, endemic problems of its own, which actually are going to become more of an issue during the next kind of 10 years, because I think the fundamentals are now turning very strongly against property in China. And it's a big sector. If you kind of broadly define property to include housing services like buying, renting, managing, and developing, and you include inputs like copper, steel, uh, glass, consumer durables, and going to new apartments and so on, property is about 29% of Chinese GDP. Wow. If 29% of GDP doesn't do very much for the next 15 years, you know, they're going to know all about it. But I guess, you know, tell us again, from your perspective of being a global economist, specializing in China, but understanding things that go on in the US and the UK, we hear about councils in the UK that are, that have run out of money. We, we know that many of the state pension funds of the US states are effectively bankrupt. We see this problem of debt piling up at the local level everywhere. Is China really so different? Or are we singling it out because it's so once removed from our own personal experience that we want to ascribe it to, to being in a worse state? Uh, I would say it's unique. It's different because it's accumulated an awful lot of debt in a very, very short space of time. Right. right. So in 2000, debt to GDP was about 100%. It's now 330, 340%. And it's not even the number really that matters that much. It's the fact that so much of the debt that has been accumulated in the last 10 or 15 years is uncommercial. And mm. a lot of the local governments can't pay them their debts back. And so they have to be effectively bankrolled or they have to resort to accounting trickery to, to stay current on their payments. And I think that it's because China has adopted this reliance on debt. I mean, the fact that a lot of state pension funds in the United States may be dysfunctional or have more liabilities than assets, I mean, it's a problem, obviously, for them, and more so it's a problem for their uh, beneficiaries. But actually, it's not going to interfere with the functioning of the American economy. It's going to cost somebody somewhere something. But we're talking about, in China's case, is a growth model that's been dependent on credit creation for the last 12 years. And now that looks to be drawing to a stop. So the stabilizers are off. Hmm. And then I think that the other thing to follow up on there, when you talk about going from 100 to 330% debt to GDP, that's in the context of GDP going up fivefold or sixfold. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Which didn't happen in the West. Exactly so. And maybe bringing it to a close for part one, this is what my lasting memory, you said that GDP is the most important number that's out there and it's the least trustworthy of all the government statistics that China produces. Presumably debt is easy to calculate and verify, which makes me wonder what the true debt to GDP ratio actually is. Well, that's, that's a great point. If was, I mean, what, one of the biggest proponents of this argument is the uh, economist who uh, teaches at uh, Tsinghua University, Mike Pettis. And he basically says that a substantial proportion of China's GDP is fake, <laughs> basically. That's, you know, that if, in other words, you know, if you build something that ends up polluting a river and you then have to unbuild it or rip it down because of that, or if it doesn't make money, you know, you've built a third or fourth method of access to an urban agglomeration and nobody uses it, 
it, it adds to GDP when it's built. Nobody actually discounts it. That doesn't happen in China. So GDP is, I don't know, 80% of what it is or 75% of what it is. And of course, your suggestion about true debt to GDP ratio is absolutely on the bar. Amazing. Well, that brings it to an end of part one. But I should remind listeners that people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. And George, me and you have discussed many times imputed rents. We have a bit of fake GDP in our own accounts as well. But uh, back in part two, we're going to look at the fear of finding out. Back with part two of Bubble Trouble, where we're joined by a very, very special guest, George Magnus, uh, the former chief economist of UBS and author of several books, including a recent one, where he takes a rather cynical view on the Chinese economy. And that's what we've been discussing. Evergrande reminds me of Enron, reminds me of that Who song, Won't Get Fooled Again. So Richard, we've been discussing FOMO as a driver of bubble troubles the past few episodes, but you've come up with a new acronym, FOFO. Try saying that after three pints of strong lager. Tell us about FOFO and how we can get to squeeze George like a sponge to explain what FOFO might mean for China. Well, one thing I've noticed with the markets is not only are as we've discussed many times, people willing to believe narratives which otherwise would sound incredulous coming from all sorts of companies. But they just turn and run a country mile from any real due diligence into those narratives. I guess my question for George is, is around this FOFO, fear of finding out. How many investors have bought into China without really having done the cultural or financial due diligence they should have where in classic investing fashion, one ought to invest in things you have a familiarity with or have a good sense of, uh, understand the demand supply characteristics. But with China, it's a, it's a market where a lot of investors buying the shares would not speak the language, would not use the products, would not understand the cultural backdrop. How do you think about that concept of FOFO and the trillions of dollars that are put to work in the Chinese economy by Western investors? I was kind of Laughing to myself, we were asking the question, really, because first thing I thought of when you were talking about that was crypto, actually. How many people <laughs> understand what they're doing? With like <laughs> that's, a set, that's a whole other struggle we haven't done yet. There's another program. The, the answer is N minus one. <laughs> but yeah. I don't really know. As long as I've been sort of treading the boards and, you know, financial services, both inside and outside, so to speak, bank financial intermediaries constantly been telling investors that underweight China, you need to get it up. You need to you know, build up your exposure. It hasn't really changed that much in the last few years. I can remember not all that long ago when maybe, you know, one or 2% of global portfolios were allocated to China. Nowadays, it's probably about four or five. And the, you know, experts, quote unquote, keep telling us it should be around 15 or 20. In other words, something aligned with China's share of the global economy. I don't think that's ever going to happen, not for the foreseeable future. China may not be the biggest part of their portfolios by any means. Is the passive investment, which people may not even be aware they're making because of the inclusion of China in uh, global indices like the MSCI Emerging Markets Index, so when you buy uh, a fund, I mean, you're just buying the fund and you look at its overall performance, but you have no idea really, or you could if you did the due diligence, but you, most people have no idea how that fund is invested. Which you basically 
are trusting in the veracity of the portfolio manager to know the asset and the valuation of that asset much better than you could ever know it. That might be true, but it might not be true. And I think that's the problem now because when it's just business risk, good old-fashioned business or financial risk, you know, we can kind of trust that financial professionals may not always know what they're doing, but many of them are pretty well trained. But we're talking about a very different kind of risk here. This is political risk, regulatory risk, and it's political risk in a very feisty global context. So I think people need to be very careful about what they're, how much they're paying for what they owe and make mm. sure they've got a, you know, a good discount on, on any price that they are being shown. I think what you've seen in the past is clearly a lot of stocks in China traded at a premium because they had this vast 1.4 billion person market to sell into. And that was seen as so attractive. There was so much greenfield growth for them to, to address. But you said something there that I really want to tease out, which is be careful what you own because in China, do you own anything? Aren't most of those companies you're going to be investing in actually providing you a vehicle which is a variable interest entity sitting in some offshore financial center, which mirrors the assets you have in China, but doesn't actually give you any right to those assets because those assets in China are all obviously owned by the state. I suppose we, uh, if it's not too nerdy, we should probably distinguish a little bit between what we might call onshore assets and offshore assets. Mm. So the offshore assets, which are, for example, stocks that you can buy on the NASDAQ Golden Dragon Index or on the Hong Kong uh, Technical Index, Technology Index. I mean, these are high-risk companies by and large because these are the ones that have mostly been affected by the regulatory changes that have been introduced. There are many private companies that are, if you're manufacturing electric vehicles or if you're uh, making, I don't know, Chinese washing machines or you know, whatever it happens to be, I mean, these aren't necessarily in the kind of government's crosshairs at the moment, certainly not in the, the kind of national security Venn diagrams. So it's not to say that all assets in China are at risk, but, but some clearly are. If you're going to go for, you know, or if you're going to kind of look at onshore listed equities, for example, then you've got also to be aware about liquidity risk and about uh, uh, all sorts of other kind of issues that might affect the functioning of foreign companies. That may be something else because you'd have to worry about them where they're listed at, at home. But the regulatory thing can actually go a lot further. I mean, I said before, regulations affecting education, logistics, fintech, technology, gig companies, but I would have thought that other things that might be in the process would be like medical care, pharma, housing. You know, these things matter a lot to household budgets and to household welfare and might be in the frame in the not too distant future. Hmm. George, if I, if I can just keep working on this newly found acronym from Richard Kramer, Fear of Finding Out Fofo, it seems like an apt point to twist this conversation back to your book on China. That is, fear of finding out if you did the right due diligence in China is one thing. What might a reader of your book find out if you know, they were a standard investor in passive markets in China, digested your book? How do you think the book would make them behave differently with regards to China? I mean, the book is 
you know, it's not just sort of a doom and gloom predictor about the collapse of the Communist Party or civil war or America, China, although these things are, you know, alluded to in various ways because obviously who can tell what the future portends. What I try to do really in the book is to try to explain to readers, we've reached in China the end of extrapolation. You cannot predict or know what's going to happen in China by saying, well, this happened over the last 20 or 30 years. Love that. We go along the straight line here. This is how it's going to end up in 2040 or 2050. I mean, that doesn't work really in any country's case, but for some reason, people are prepared to believe that the, you know, the inevitable rise of China is inevitable. It isn't. Three cheers for that, because after speaking with Richard Kramer, so much investment analysis seems to be holding a ruler and saying, there's your future. Not that we endorse that. We <laughs> do not endorse that view, Will. The thing is that every investor knows, actually, they don't know. They should know that in the small print of the documents they sign, it says something to the effect of, you know, the future may not look like the past, or future performance may not replicate past performance. They did that, didn't they, from a compliance point of view after the financial crisis. This is the same thing with China. I mean, you have to be able to say, look backwards and say, that narrative was really good for 35 years, and this is why. And actually, it doesn't hold, it doesn't work looking forward. We have to set a new narrative, new condition, new circumstances. So that was, that's point number one. And point number two is when Xi Jinping came to power in 2012, everything changes, right? It's not the China that our parents and grandparents grew up with or watching. Um, and the governance system which China under Xi Jinping has adopted and is evolving is not the governance system under which it erupted the way that it did in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. It's very much totalitarian. It's controlling. It's the state leads everything. The party leads everywhere. That's not the environment that we knew about or thought we knew about when we were looking at dynamic private Chinese companies that were blazing the trail in lots of different places. And so that's kind of what I want people really to take away. So George, the name of this podcast is Bubble Trouble, and I've got to ask you, when you look at the trillions of dollars that are represented by the Chinese market on global stock markets, not just in China or on Hong Kong, but in the U.S., are we looking at a bubble, given what you've seen in, in debt, in the hostile environment facing China, and in some of the structural issues facing their companies? Or do you think the weight of demographics and the growth of the Chinese economy overcome all those challenges? I, I don't think that the Chinese financial markets themselves are chronically overvalued. I'm not saying they wouldn't go down in the event of some shock or macroeconomic problem. And obviously, since the regulatory blizzard happened, you know, the prices of many Chinese stocks in the kind of the digital and modern sector have come down you know, 40, 45%. So there's been a big kind of valuation slump, um, which I don't think is going to revert uh, very quickly or, or even at all. But I do think that if people around the world and in other countries and active in other equity and financial markets are assuming 
that China can go through the next few years. I mean, next year, 2022, may be a special year because of the party congress. They'll pull all the stops out to make sure there's no accidents. But if people think that markets will survive, China becomes a much more pedestrian, low growth, perhaps even recessionary for a while place as the property market will come down. I think it'll be a big shock to people's expectations, I I'm tempted to ask, is there a sequel to your book? But there's a more pertinent question to ask you, which is something we ask in the show called Smoke Signals. It's obviously a big year for Chinese politics in 2022. Is there a couple of smoke signals you can give our listeners for perhaps signs of some of the warnings you make in the book are going to come to fruition? Yeah, amongst several. Okay. I think, first of all, people need to pay a lot of attention always to Chinese politics because the party is central to everything, whether it happens inside China's boundaries or in the rest of the world, Taiwan, South China Sea, which is institutes in Europe or wherever it happens to be. So watch the politics and in particular, watch the change in the long run up to the 20th Congress, the year 2022, mm. where they expect to be crowned uh, for a third term the first time since since Mao Zedong, by the way. There may be one or more countries prepared to boycott the Winter Olympics diplomatically. The Chinese will not like that. And uh, there could be kind of ructions flowing from that. And I'd say kind of last but not least, obviously because I'm an economist, I, and I watch the economy very closely, and I think that China's ability to project power in the world is based on its economic effort. So anything that interrupts China's economic heft, I think, is consequential. And um, property market, lack of alternative development model, and growing headwinds that China is running into during the next 10 years, I think, are all going to be telling in their own ways. I'll make sure my agent listens to this and gets you that sequel to your book. That wraps it up for this episode of Bubble Talk. I'm honoured to have George Magnus on as a guest, a mentor to me for over 15 years. And my thanks to Richard Kramer, not just for his contribution, but for introducing a hot new acronym to the Alphabet Super Financial Speak. From FOMO in the West, we are missing out, to FOFO in China. That's been Bubble Trouble and see you next time. If you're new to Bubble Trouble, we hope you'll follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Bubble Trouble is produced by Eric Newsom, Jesse Baker, and Julia Natt at Magnificent Noise. You can learn more at bubbletroublepodcast.com. Will Page and I will see you next time.